A few years ago, the National Park Service did a study on their visitors and reported that over the span of one year, 80% of their visitors were white. Not only that, 80% of their staff were white too. These numbers alerted people to an aspect of life in the U.S. that feels rather obvious. That going camping, hiking, rock climbing, and outdoor recreation in general kind of just seems like things that white people do. So when I came across these demographics, I immediately went like, duh. I mean, all the time when I look at movies or things like magazine advertisements, environmentalists are depicted as 20-something-year-old white dudes, dudes who make documentaries about polar bears or go on rough, manly adventures in the mountains, dudes who wear Patagonia and hiking boots and rock gnarly beards. Here's one way to begin thinking about why outdoor recreation is so white. Imagine if you heard about a party and you heard through your friends and through social media that, let's say, hundreds of these dudes were attending. Would you go? Um, when you look at the, like, um, how, how do you know about a party? This is Michelle G, Chief of Interpretation and Education at the Golden Gate National Recreation Area for the National Park Service. Right? It's usually you tell your friends about the party, you know. You're not necessarily gonna go on Google and, and randomly search out a party and not know anyone and go there, right? You don't feel safe. It's not your space. Why would you go? Although it looks cool, you're not gonna miss it. You'll go maybe with your friends if you find some random thing. So it's the same with like a national park or any parks, I think. Like if all the, the, the thousands of people who work for the National Park Service are white, then you're, they're gonna tell all their family and friends who are probably mostly white. Um, and so it's a perpetuating cycle, right, of, of who goes. So when it comes to the parks and outdoor spaces, it's not just about whether or not you got an invite. It's about asking yourself, if I go, do I know how to behave? What do I wear? Can I afford the entrance fee? Do I feel safe? And then there's more the abstract, intangible feeling of asking yourself, do I really belong here? The difference between a park and a party is that a park is supposed to be a public space. So why does going to the park feel as exclusive as going to the club? Um, I don't know if there's any singular answer. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really um, multi-layered um, history that we're going back into in a complex issue. But the, the founders, you know, what were their real intentions? Um, and they weren't, it wasn't necessarily, they weren't creating parks for Everyone. When they said everyone, it was not everyone. Um, they were thinking of their white um, counterparts. This is the first episode of Neutral Grounds, a podcast series about nature-loving culture and how it relates to race, place, and history. Were the parks really made for white people? The answer is yes. I'm going to look at this legacy through three different angles because, like Michelle says, there are many layers to what's going on. To get to the bottom of this, we need to talk to the people who are actually in the parks. We're going to hang out in San Francisco and talk to people from places like the John Muir Woods, a redwood forest in the Bay Area, and places like the Chrissy Field Urban Park, where people have 4th of July barbecues. I'm Shirley Wang. I'll be your host. This series is called Neutral Grounds because I want us to remember that park spaces are often depicted as apolitical, 
The way people interact with the outdoors is far from neutral. Race, identity, our backgrounds and perspectives very much inform who belongs, who imagines themselves in wilderness spaces, and who does not. Park visitors are generally not used to seeing people of color in the parks. Here's one example from a leader in the park service named Ernesto Pepito. He works with young people of color and takes them outside for activities like gardening, pulling out weeds, and mulching. I've been at service projects where people have come in and, has, and told me, what did these kids do wrong? You know, so they assume them doing service in the park is a punishment. You know, and so like there's any number of like reasons why I've had to, I or our staff had to, had to reassure or felt it was important to tell the group that um, people's perception of how we're interacting with this place or how we're just trying to have a really good time or how we're our noise level um, we have a right to, to do what we're doing but they felt uh, someone was watching them someone was telling them what to do and somehow they felt they were doing something wrong like or they felt someone thought that as a group we were doing something wrong um, so yeah I think it it makes them feel um, that it's not their space. Um, it probably makes them feel that if they were ever to come back, they'd have to be really cautious and, and, and there would be a sense of not feeling welcomed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think it probably, right, if we're talking about the, the word marginalization, if it's young people who l navigate their schools, their neighborhoods, any other institutions, feeling like an outcast and feeling a little mistreated and not served, um, nature becomes just another one of those places. In parks, we are constantly reminded that outdoor recreation was not made for people of color. In this first episode, we're going to look at the exclusive history of the parks. In the next episode, we will look at issues of physical access, as in transportation costs and park fees. And in the last episode, we're going to examine the outdoor recreation culture and look at how even social behavior is regulated by whiteness through things like the clothes you wear, the food you eat, and how you think. But to get there, first we need to think about where this idea of the parks comes from. We need to talk about erasure. Why? Because in the United States, our idea of the pure wilderness and pure nature usually doesn't include any people at all. Our idea of nature is pretty much empty. Everybody needs beauty, as well as bread. Places to play in and pray in, where nature may heal and give strength to body and soul. This is an ad from North Face Apparel. People in this video are jumping off cliffs into water, snowboarding on snowy mountains, and running across boulders into a waterfall. And in these scenes, the person is either alone or with one or two other people. From a conservationist perspective, this is a good thing because then nature becomes a place to visit or escape to. The idea is that we can protect it better if we are only using it to enjoy its beauty. But the great outdoors wasn't always empty. People used to live right in the heart of those isolated corners of the mountains, in the thick of the forests and valleys of the U.S. What happened to them? We'll start our story in a place that isn't necessarily a park, but is still part of the National Park Service. That place is Alcatraz Island. I am a National Park Ranger out here. What kind of history do you think is missing uh, in the park of Alcatraz? 
Well, when I first started here about two years ago, there weren't a lot of rangers that were doing programs on the Native American occupation. This park rangers tour is called Indian Lands. It's free for anyone who wants to join. While the other tours focused on the Alcatraz prison, this rangers tours took us to parts of the site that talked about a little known story, the story of the longest Native American occupation in the history of the United States that took place right here on this island in 1969. A whole bunch of indigenous people came out from uh, San Francisco State and uh, San Francisco State University and UC Berkeley, and they came out here to occupy the island because of a treaty that was signed back The Treaty of Laramie of 1968 gave the Sioux people the right to claim any land retired by the federal government. After the Alcatraz prison closed in 1963, Native American activists saw this as an opportunity to reclaim the land and to use it to build a college for Native American students. They just felt like there were so many injustices that the community had to uh, face, the entire indigenous community all over the country. Um, and so they wanted to make sure that uh, with the civil rights era being in full swing, that they wanted to make sure that indigenous people had a, a role in fighting for their civil rights as well. After the occupation, however, instead of giving the island to the indigenous people, the island was closed for a few years. Then it was given to the National Park Service. This isn't the first time that's happened. The land of the Yosemite, Yellowstone, and Glacier National Parks also took land directly from indigenous people. And this is the first step of erasure, literal removal of people's bodies from the land. A really well-known national park is Yellowstone in Wyoming. Before it was a park, that land was owned by the Mountain Crow Group. Colonizers were okay with that at first, but after a while, a certain preservationist idea began to gain popularity. It was the idea that animals, birds, and wildlife needed to be protected by federal law. The Army and state troops started to systematically remove any indigenous person found in the park. Tribe members were relocated or given subservient roles as employees of the park. Many were even murdered. But when you look at the numbers, much of the animal killing and environmental abuse was not done by indigenous people. It didn't matter that most of the killing was actually done by white, upper-middle-class park visitors. As the park managers saw it, it was easier to label the indigenous people as the killers, since they were already considered savages. Back on Alcatraz, the ghosts of this past still haunt the island. Many visible remnants of the occupation have been intentionally preserved. All over the buildings, random walls, and on the water tower, there are messages painted in red. One says, Peace and freedom, welcome. Home of the free Indian land. Another says, Warning, keep off Indian property. Inside the prison, there are red handprints above the door frames. But this is significant. This is um, the symbol for the Red Power Movement um, that would be famous all over the rest of the country. This tour is part history of the island, part social justice education. She talks about indigenous people's history, but also talks about the civil rights movement, past and present. 
In an hour, she brings in the following, the COINTELFBI program that targeted Black Panther activists in the 60s, the incarceration of black males in the U.S., the politics behind the Redskins football team name, and she talks about cultural appropriation, Flint, Michigan, Black Lives Matter. But throughout the tour, she keeps repeating something. She asks people to tell her if they think she's inserting her opinion. I asked her why. Um, because... What I'm talking about out here is very controversial. A civil rights movement is being celebrated out here um, to a certain extent. Um, and there are a lot of people that are against civil rights movements. They think that there shouldn't be protests, that we are in a post-racial society. This woman came up to me and she's like, I cannot believe that your tax dollars are going towards my, um, that my tax dollars are going towards your, um, your paycheck so that you can just tell me your opinions and stuff like that. And I was like, oh <laughs> yeah and like she was very angry and, and so I was just like oh I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way um this is my name if you want to go ahead and grab a like a comment card and talk about it um I'm sorry you felt that way but she looks at my my uh, my name tag and she says oh grassy ass and then like walks away yeah I was like all right I'm not even gonna trip about this because there's obviously another thing that she's bothered about like my ethnicity People react this way because parks are seen as apolitical spaces, so it's jolting to talk about racism today. This park ranger deals with a lot of this kind of feedback, but she wants her visitors to see how the traumas of the past have been carried on throughout generations. It's, it's not like when we're talking about these kinds of issues, it has everything to do with race. You cannot ever say that it's isolated from it. That's what this, this place was built off of. So like, you know, like, and so at the end of the day, it's all about bringing back history again. It's not about bringing in um, emotions, it's not about bringing in opinions, it's about bringing historical facts and being like, look, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like, this is exactly what happened in the past. It's not a surprise that it's happening in the future, but we have to keep talking about it, even if it's painful to talk about, um, so that it doesn't keep happening if you don't agree with it. Like, do you feel supported in the National Park Service if you tell these types of stories? Um, I do feel supported. Um, yeah, I mean, I I have like a really good boss. Like, Catherine Daskal is amazing. Um, she's been very supportive of me and like me telling like every side of the story. Um, I think for a very long time, a lot of the rangers like were like maybe scared to talk about it I don't know but also like I've talked to them and I'm like hey like why don't I ever see you do like a Native American occupation and they're just like well I can easily get 200 people on an escapes program so I'm just gonna do that the fact that and, people uh, who come here and only hear the story of how people escaped from Alcatraz is exactly how erasure works it's like the Native American occupation never happened you only hear this fun story instead I talked with Michelle about this um, I would say that people tell history that they um, that makes them look good. Perhaps um, they are embarrassed or ashamed of some history, so they often want to cover it up, um, or they don't want to acknowledge it, or they don't find evidence of it. Um, and so you just have to frame it the right way to digest it. I think it's similar to. Um, Alcatraz. Like, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be interpreting a, a prison site. Um, and people, I'm surprised people come. I never was one that, I never went to Alcatraz growing up, and um, I didn't get why people were were laughing and taking selfies in the cell house. And 
and I, I understand that people want to have fun and want to have a good time, but I think there's a there's a, they could also have an enjoyable, rewarding experience that's a little bit different and 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 just as memorable and even more transformative. So they may go out thinking they're going to hear all about Al Capone and this gangster history that's been really glamorized in the media and in movies, um, and then they um, you get in that way, you know, but you walk out a little bit different because we actually talk and relate it to what's going on today. Why is there such a high level of um, prisoners in the United States versus other countries? What What is mass incarceration and, and who are we locking up and for what reasons? Um, Michelle is all of her dropping truths, but she feels it has to be done in a somewhat gentle there's way. There's a combination. You know, we don't want to, you know, force feed information about a resource or whatever you want about a, a, a structure or a site down people's throats. Um, and you want to tell them what you want to hear, but sometimes it's difficult. Um, history is difficult to hear. Oftentimes when people talk about going outdoors, they talk about escaping society to shed all the social dilemmas and political events that weigh on our shoulders and to feel free, away from all the complication of being amongst people. I get it. Life is hard right now, and it can be exhausting, but the way to get through all this is to deal directly with it. The Park Service in San Francisco is trying to use the park's reputation as a comfortable space to talk about systemic problems today. On the next episode, we travel a little further from the city to a place called the John Muir Woods. Did you know that both the founder of this park and the guy they named the park after were blatantly racist? The park's ranger's efforts to address this legacy doesn't exactly translate into a higher turnout of people of color. This park is an ancient protected forest and it's far, far away from the city. So is retelling histories enough? Or is there something else that has to be done? The rather unsurprising answer and its complexities coming up. This has been Neutral Grounds. Thanks for listening.